Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by Toronto's Mayor John Tory. We discuss the city's financial needs in the current pandemic, how the city can better address racism in the wake of the tragic death of Regis Korczynski-Paquette, as well as important issues of affordable housing and public health. John, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks a lot. And uh, glad that you're spending more time in Toronto, not, not of uh, choice, but by necessity. Glad to have you here because you can pick up on the issues. And my, my family is very happy to have me at home as well, and I'm especially happy to, to be home with them. So the city has made specific requests of the federal government for support. You're not the only city to do so. The Federation of Canadian Municipalities has a request into our federal government for support. For those who are unaware of the dire need for support for our municipalities, what is the current state of affairs in Toronto, and, and why do you need support right now? Well, first of all, uh, municipalities, I think, as people may know, can't run a deficit. And I think that's a good thing because it causes us to have to balance our budget every year. Secondly, uh, municipalities only have very limited uh, tax tools. We have the property tax, which everybody out there watching is more than too familiar with. Uh, and then we have the land transfer tax in Toronto. And so beyond those two things, we don't have any other ways to raise money. And frankly, our money does grow with the economy. Like if you have sales tax and income tax, as the economy does better, those amounts grow. So if you put those two things together, when we lose money, which we've done during the pandemic, as all governments have, but we lose money on things like people not riding transit. That's costing the city of Toronto between 20 and $25 million a week. Uh, when you have people not buying and selling houses, you lose land transfer tax revenue and on it goes. Uh, so that we end up in a situation where by the end of the year, if a lockdown kind of lasts that long, uh, and even if the kind of ramping back up is, is slow and measured, which we think it will be, we'll be in the hole to the tune of about one and a half billion dollars. And we don't really have any way to make that up because we can't borrow it. We can't run a deficit. We could bring in a gigantic tax increase, but I think all the people in the beaches and elsewhere would say, hey, this is the last thing we need right now. Or we could cut services dramatically. And I think right now, this is the time when people need those services. So that's how we got to where we are. And the trouble is, you know, as people continue not to ride the transit, the amount gets bigger and bigger and bigger every week. It's not one of those things where you can just cut it off. I mean, you could shut the transit system down. But I think there's an awful lot of people we rely on to get to work, like essential service workers, health workers, and so on, where if you shut it down. So we have done some layoffs, which we hated to do, but we did it. But, you know, we still have to maintain service for people. So that's why we're in the situation we're in. Uh, and it's not anybody's fault. It's the pandemic's fault. And how does that request fit within the FCM's ask of $10 billion for operating costs, including for transit? Well, it's all operating. We're asking for the FCM cities, the big cities are asking for help only on the operating side. As it were, the federal government is supporting us very generously on capital for housing and for transit and things like that. These are operating dollars that pay the salaries of the police officers and the firefighters, keep the parks clean and keep the roads and run the transit system. And so our billion five is within the, the 10 billion. So we're going to be by far the biggest number, but we're also by far the biggest city. So you'd expect that we would have a number that's bigger than most people. Some of the smaller cities don't have these problems. You know what the big differentiator is, Nate? It's that uh, we have a big transit system. You know, it's the biggest by far in the country. It carries 1.8 million people a day. And so as you lose money on that transit system, lose revenue, it adds up much faster than it would for a city like, say, Regina or, uh, you know, Winnipeg. I mean, they have transit systems, but way smaller than ours. And the provinces are stepping to the table? Because this is one conversation, at least, that has been going on in Ottawa, 
or remotely among federal colleagues is we don't typically fund operating costs. There are many of us who are saying these are extraordinary times and we need to make sure that our cities are not cutting services for our citizens and we need to be in partnership with the provinces and the municipalities. Do you see this being a 50-50 endeavor as between provinces and federal government? Well, I sure see it as an endeavor in which the provinces have to be involved. And, and fortunately, in our province of Ontario, uh, Premier Doug Ford, after I had a press conference in which I said, I got together all the mayors from the GTA and said, look, you, Mr. Premier, respectfully, you have to go first because cities are the responsibility first and foremost under our constitution of the provincial government. And I said, I was pretty confident that if he went first and said he cared, he was going to be involved in the issue and help contribute to its solution, that the federal government would follow. And sure enough, what's happened is he came forward, said he cared, he wanted to be involved, he would be part of the solution, called on the federal government to come to the table and have a chat. So they're chatting. And I guess I'm happy about that. Uh, and the only point that I've made recently is that, you know, the conversation can't go on for too long because every day that you go by, and people know this from their household budgets, business budgets, if you leave it later and later and later in the year, then the cuts you have to make are even more severe because you, to save the same amount of money, you have to sort of cut deeper. So I'm confident, and I've said this many times publicly, that the two governments, while they're still having a bit of a, you know, when you say 50-50, that'd be the simplest way to resolve it. But it's never that simple. And so they're having, I think, one of these routines where they're trying to decide, you know, if there's going to be a 60-40, who's the 60 and who's the 40 or whatever the numbers are. So, but they're talking. And Doug Ford has helped. And uh, people like uh, Christopher Freeland and, and others have been uh, terrific. As your government has been good. Look, Bill Morneau told me himself, the finance minister, the first thing we have to do is look after individual people. You know, all those people who lost their jobs and had no money, no income coming in all of a sudden. The second people we have to look after are small business because small businesses are more vulnerable. We all know that story. There's lots of them in the beach that, you know, the beaches that just had to close up. And then we sort of thought we'd be third. And, and the thing is, it's like going to an ATM machine. If there'd been a lot of people taking a lot of money out ahead of you, you know, you might end up sort of having to wait a little longer for them to come and replenish the supply. But in any event, the discussions are going on. Uh, and I'm confident that there will be a national answer found between the federal government, the provincial government, and the cities. And it's good for the recovery because cities are a strong part of the recovery, especially Toronto, which, as you know, accounts for 20% of the country's entire economy. And on the one hand, the federal government pre-pandemic certainly had greater fiscal flexibility than the provinces and certainly the municipalities, as you've noted. We have seen significant dollars, I would say, 95% of the relief funds we've seen and uh, to the tune of $200 billion plus now has been from the federal government for individuals and businesses, as you noted. But it, it does leave a, a question in my mind when I see $150 billion for the wage subsidy effectively over five to six month period of time. And then the cities, every municipality is, is asking for $10 billion collectively. It pales in comparison to the supports we provided for individuals and businesses, but it's critically important for citizens' lives. Yeah, I tried to make that same point to some of the finance people and saying, well, look, compared to the amounts of money that have been invested elsewhere, this is not that big. It's a huge amount, nonetheless. Uh, that didn't work so well because, <laughs> look, every, every $10 billion, you know, is $10 billion. But sure. what I did say was this, and I believe this to be true of the stuff that's been put into business, too, and I think your government has been a great partner for people and for businesses to help them out through a very tough time. But the investment made in the cities and the health that they'll have as a result. So they're not going to be sitting around all summer planning cuts and being unstable. They're going to be stable, strong engines of economic recovery. 
I believe that the major beneficiary of that will be the federal government because it will get, and the provincial government, they will get back the income tax revenue for more people working, the sales tax revenue for more people buying things, and the corporate tax revenue, hopefully, from companies that start to make money again. And so I think, you know, because the fact is the municipalities, if the economy starts to grow again, really don't get any of that money. And that's fine. That's the way it is. I could complain and, and you'd throw me off your uh, webcast. But at the end of the day, the beneficiary will be the federal government. It will be a great investment in, in a strong recovery and uh, and in the services that people really do rely on. Like they really do rely on those kind of day-to-day -day municipal services uh, that are provided by cities. And so, but I'm, I'm optimistic. And as I say, the talks are going Okay, I just wish they'd go a little faster. I'm optimistic as well, and the I, I've emphasized three points fundamentally, which is there's urgency to this, and we need to deliver federal dollars for operating costs for our cities so they can secure and maintain the, the critical city services that are necessary for our residents. Two, provinces absolutely have to be part of the picture. We can't go this alone. We've leaned in, of course, in other areas like commercial tenancies, where not typically federal jurisdiction, but provinces were expected to pick up part of the tab there too. And so they have to be part of the picture for municipalities. Third, I think this is indicative of a longer term conversation that is required about a new fiscal framework for cities. I agree with that. I mean, you know, in the end, we should be accountable for the money we need to deliver the services we're delivering. And over time, we've developed various arrangements between all the governments, and it's very complicated. You take areas like childcare and housing. I mean, I've studied these now for years, and I still haven't quite figured out exactly how, how it all gets paid for. And the problem with that is you never really get to determine who's responsible. And I think whereas if you said to the city, okay, you will have the difficult decision which you guys faced in Ottawa of saying, okay, are we going to raise the HSP a point, or are we going to raise income taxes or lower them or do this or do that? You know, you're accountable for it. And so I would happily take on that responsibility because I think it would make the city council think very carefully, you know, before they spent money, if they were having to raise it themselves because they had the tool, the tax tool to do it. And, and as it is, we don't really have any tax tools. So, it's, you know, we can massively raise property taxes, which, as you know, are regressive taxes. And they really hurt a lot of seniors, say, in the beaches who are staying in their home and they've stayed there for 50 years and they want to stay there for as long as they can. And if you force them out through high property taxes, that's a ridiculous you know, way to go about doing that. So you're right. I mean, we need a new deal. They've talked about that for 25 years, and I don't think anybody wants to open up the Constitution again. So, but if people of goodwill sat down, provinces, feds, cities, and said, okay, how do we finance these cities better so we're not always going cap in hand to somebody? I think it would work better for everybody, but uh, that's for another day. Though I would say the one tool that I might look to on property taxes is not to punish those of fixed incomes and not to punish those with say a $550,000, $600,000 condo, but where we do see multi-million dollar homes, probably they could pay a, a few ticks more as far as a more progressive property tax might go. So the people know uh, that are watching us, that would require the province to allow us to do that. Right now, we have a sort of basically flat uh, tax exactly. rate that is applied and it's applied based on your assessment. So you do pay more if you own a $10 million house. But the notion you might even pay a higher rate if you own a $10 million house is not allowed of us. We can only do the one rate applied across your assessment. So that's how it works. Exactly. Now, where cities play a fundamental role to switch the conversation a little bit, we see protests across the United States. We've seen those protests come up to Canada, and for good reason, given our own legacy of racism and anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism. Obama wrote recently... The elected officials who matter most in reforming police departments and the criminal justice system work at the state and local levels. And that is true in many respects here in Canada, too, where he highlighted the ability to appoint police chiefs 
to negotiate collective agreements with unions. And I wonder if you could speak to the efforts in your office and really from city council to address racism in our city. Well, when you're dealing with the police and racism, because you started off mentioning that, I will just tell you there's been a huge effort made. And I think there is a culture change taking place inside the Toronto Police Service, but these things take time. But I, I would say to you, there's been a huge culture change that has begun in earnest. And, and I think it's going to happen, yes, by a lot of training that's going on with respect to how to deal with the challenge posed by the diversity that is our great blessing in the city of Toronto and a huge and, and, and fortunately so very large black Canadian population, indigenous people, of course, were here first um, and, and others. I mean, there are others who are the subject of racism who are not black or indigenous. Uh, but having said all that, huge training program, which I think both that and the evolution of more of the young people coming into the police service who've grown up in an environment where, you know, they grew up way after the 1960s when it was still possible in North America to have places where there was segregation happening. And it takes a long time to get over that kind of trauma that you've experienced if you are a person that is a Black Canadian or a Black American, for that matter. Number two, at the city, we did something that we thought was really important, which is to acknowledge the continued existence and very negative impact of anti-Black racism by setting up a confronting, it's called the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit, the CABR. And it's a unit that's inside the city hall and its mandate based on what the community told us on things like employment, like policing, is to be advocates, is to be a community kind of sounding board and to take action. And that unit is the first of its kind in North America, but it, it arose out of an honest admission that I made and my colleagues made to say, we have racism here too. It, it manifests itself, thank God, differently. Even the protests uh, that, that arise out of that continued racism are different here. But having said all that, the problem is still you know, one that we have to confront. And so that organization inside the city hall has brought about a whole lot of changes, including looking at the careers. Tell you a story. It's a short story. I went, uh, when in the middle of developing that anti-Black racism action plan, to sit down with the probably 10 most senior Black public servants in the city of Toronto Public Service. And I said, so help me. Tell me about your own experience here at city hall. And I was thinking I was going to get a fairly positive account from these people because they made it, you know, up to the top. They told me about obstacles they faced and things that happened to them, some conscious and some unconscious, that I was sitting there and it was a great education for me. And it really emboldened me to say, look, we've got to do more because just to sort of say, well, things are working out okay because a few people made it to the top of the city public service is not good enough. Our police chief, I don't think he minds me telling the story because he's told me, he goes into stores. He's, for those who don't know that are watching this, he's, he's black, Mark Saunders. He goes into stores and says he actually sort of smiles to himself, but he doesn't smile. He's actually anguished in a different way at the fact that 10 seconds after he walks in the store, somebody's kind of following him around the store, not knowing he's the chief of police, for goodness sake, but because he's black. And we heard the and same. I've never had that experience. Oh, yeah, ex exactly. And obviously, I mean, so many people have similar stories. Uh, Ahmed Hussein, our uh, minister responsible for families and, and communities, has recently spoken to the media about similar experiences and unacceptable. And I think all the more reason in many respects incumbent on people in leadership positions to acknowledge that systemic racism. Unfortunately, Doug Ford kind of downplayed it today to put it lightly and said, we don't have the same deep roots of systemic racism. And Francois Legault, Premier of Quebec, has completely dismissed it saying we don't have systemic racism in Quebec. The fact is we do. And the fact is there are statistics. And one of the reasons, for example, why we as a city are collecting COVID-19 statistics, uh, including collecting by race and, and other kinds of demographic statistics, is because we want to take a look at that, just as we agreed about six or eight months ago, as a police service to collect race-based data 
on the people that are having encounters with the police because we need to know what the facts are and and then when the facts show something that's a problem for us we can point to those facts and say this is why we have to act but you should be collecting these so that you know these things and as long as nobody misuses them but the fact is we just do uh, I mean, it is a, a reality. And it's funny because you could go around to many other people in different communities and ask them, well, do you think there's anti-Semitism in Toronto? And they say, oh, yes. Right. And do you think there's uh, sentiments that go against uh, people who might be from uh, brown skin uh, people or anti-Asian, uh, especially during the pandemic? And people will say, yes. Yeah. So I don't know why we sort of somehow think it's, I don't know whether it's impolite or, or, or whatever it is to acknowledge. We have anti-Black racism here. It feeds a trauma that Black Canadians have experienced in their lives and in previous generations in their lives that it takes a while to get over. We understand that with respect to other groups, they have traumatic experiences in their life or in the lives of their ancestors, and it takes a while to kind of recover from that. So look, we've admitted it here in Toronto. It's something that uh, we still need things like those heartfelt protests. It was peaceful, but it was people who were emotionally fatigued. They were hurt. They were upset by what they've seen in the United States and some things they still see here. And we owe it to them to respond to that. And I think that's why they have the protest and thank God it was peaceful. But the notion that we don't have a problem to address here is uh, fanciful. And you mentioned interactions with police. You mentioned even the chief of police having interactions where he's been subject to some racism. I mean, when we look to the recent events and the tragic death of the young girl, you've rightly said we need an expedited investigation as transparent as possible, as thorough as possible from the SIU. Do you think that we might have avoided some of the open questions and accusations if we had cameras, for example, on police officers? Yes, and the police board approved body-worn cameras about six or eight months ago, and actually the, uh, the procurement process to buy them, you know, in government, we have to go through a competitive process, as they do in business, and that has just been, uh, or is about to be completed. So those cameras actually, I mean, uh, tragically, will be on the vests of the officers uh, this fall for the first group, and, and we're buying them to have everybody have them. So that's going to be important. It's important as an accountability uh, tool for everybody involved, everybody, for the police officers. I mean, they... They are among those who welcome the body-worn cameras as well because there's always, you know, different sides to every story. But you know what's going to make the bigger difference than body-worn cameras, Nate, is community police officers. We had got to a stage, and, and it was long before my time and yours, but we got to a stage where the cops just showed up with the lights going and the sirens going when a really bad thing happened. And we got away from what's an old-fashioned concept that we're bringing back, which is a cop walking the beat in a neighborhood. And in the case of our community policing program, those police officers will have to stay in that neighborhood for at least three years. So as they walk around in the beaches or whatever, they're going to get to know everybody by first name. And that's what you want. You want the people to call the police officer by the first name. Then a relationship of trust develops. Then you're more likely to tell the police officer something. But you certainly aren't going to be reacting badly when that police car with the lights and sirens shows up after a bad event. Because you're going to be used to having the police in your neighborhood as a positive force. And they will learn about the people that they're dealing with. And it's going to be a wonderful thing. We've, we've got it in the budget this year. And people say defund the police. We defund 40 new officers that are going to be those community officers in a bunch more neighborhoods around the city. And that's what I think is going to be a hugely important part of this, in addition to body-worn cameras, in addition to the training that I talked about to make people more sensitive to some of these issues, including mental health, by the way. You mentioned the funding issue with police. We saw some... Uh, reports today where I think it was an average property tax bill of $3,000, $700 goes to policing, the, the largest in, by, by a wide margin expense for the city of Toronto. Community policing certainly is important to build those relationships and to build that trust. 
but at the same time, in direct investments in communities and not only police seems to be a longer term answer to address the injustices. And that, you know, I, I, re I have had a recent conversation with a criminologist at U of T and he emphasized the importance of investments in communities and emphasized the importance of when we look to some of the requirements even of the organizations and the funding and activities of the organizations, that, then there's a, com a component where they have to work with the police. And he says, you know, yes, policing is important, community policing is important, but let's also put more dollars into communities themselves. We're doing it. I mean, we're investing millions, and so is the federal government this year in things that are devoted to trying, I call it investments in kids and families, because in the end, a lot of it is devoted to helping keep kids, you know, in more positive engagement in the community than perhaps, you know, drifting off into a life that is going to be less, uh, less positive. Uh, so we are now. The police budget is still big. Even if we invest millions more, which we're doing in anti-poverty measures, you know, we're we're investing tens of millions more and giving people a, a fair uh, discount on the TTC if they're in low-income groups. And of course, there's a correspondence between those who are lower income and those who are um, in some of these marginalized groups. So we're we're doing it, but the police budget is what it is. And if you if you say we'll cut back on it, you are then going to have to cut back on the community officers because what we pay police officers is is part of a collective agreement. The increase in the police budget over the time I've been mayor, six years, is 1.6%. That is not a gigantic increase. It's a big number. It's a billion dollars. But we're paying for 5,100 police officers to keep us safe and all the sophisticated technology and the cars and the, you know, everything. And it's a big number. I'm the first to admit it. But the notion of that we can just defund the police, which is what people say, I don't think it's very practical when we have as a major, major priority for people who are mayors or MPs keeping the city safe. Because if the city isn't safe, then people are going to really regret that. And they've got to fight guns and gangs, and they've got to fight drug dealers, and they've got to fight the bad guys. And they need people and equipment to do that. And that's it's costly. I think the key is to find the resources to invest the extra money, as our two governments are doing, in young people and in, uh, you know, uh, crime prevention and other kinds of programs to enrich young people. I mean, in the end, I think, yeah, a dollar spent on, you know, poverty reduction will have greater dividends ultimately and and other dollars in housing. And, you know, when we talk about investing in communities, you talk about kids and families, we can also talk about the importance of affordable housing. And you have made affordable housing a significant priority in the city through the Housing Now framework. Uh, I wonder, though, and correct me if these numbers are wrong, but so the Housing Now framework calls for 4,000 affordable units built a year, every year up to 2030, and uh, we see 1,000 per year being done right now. And so I wonder what needs to change to deliver the speed that we need. I think two things, and I think you're getting the first, and we're working on the second. The first is that we have to have the resources from the government number, um, and they build it, because the government doesn't build houses itself. It relies on private and nonprofit people to build housing, and we, in effect, create the affordability by using money, deferred taxes, deferred uh, development charges to make it possible for some of those uh, apartments to be affordable over the long term. I'm talking 50 years or 99 years. And so we need to have that money and the national housing strategy coming from uh, the federal government and a very substantial amount of money put in by the city itself um, and some contributions made by the province have all made that part possible. The second thing I think we have to do is, um, you know, get the lead out, as they would say. And we, and that's in two respects. I mean, first, we, we just, I just announced today, we found the two sites for some modular housing, which are like prefabricated houses. They're quite nice. And they have them in Vancouver. And we're going to have our first projects. And they will, the interesting thing, they will go from June, when we approve the concept, to September, people will be moving in. Of this year, all this year, not five years from now. 
And we've got to get to the stage where we can use more innovative measures like that, but also speed up our general process and say, okay, if you're going to build affordable rental housing for us, we're going to give you the gold star treatment and we're not going to sort of bog you down in years of approvals and so on. And we're getting better at that. We're working very hard at that. We've used the crisis of the pandemic to kind of change some of our processes, but we've got to do better at that. And by the way, the thousand target was a target set in 2009 and not met once before I became the mayor. And we've actually now exceeded it substantially. I think the number of affordable units under construction as we speak approved under construction is I think almost 5,000. And so we're really starting to ramp those numbers up, but we have a lot more to do. On the uh, modular housing, I had messaged a constituent who's an expert on these things, Mark, and he'd noted to me, we would need to approve one of those 50 unit buildings every 10 days to get to the targets that we're talking about. So speed, scale, and execution matter so much. Yeah. We're doing these two smaller ones. And generally speaking, the advice is you should build them in about 50 unit you know, buildings. So they're not big buildings, they're like three story buildings and they have these nice 750 square foot units in them that are like bachelor apartments. And they come, interestingly enough, they crane them into place like a Lego set with the furniture all in them, like the bed and the dresser is in there. It's fascinating actually. They make them in Grimsby just down, uh, down the highway. But yeah. But we don't view that as the answer. It's one of the answers. And we're going to use that. And we're going to speed up the process for these housing now buildings, which have to contain. We're going to use what they call inclusionary zoning, which says to developers, you have to have a certain percentage of units in your building that are affordable home ownership or affordable, affordable rental. And I think by doing that, we can get to the kind of critical mass that you refer to. Um, and get those numbers much higher. And we're already making great progress, but we've got a lot more to do. I, I was mentioning, speaking to the criminologist from U of T, we talked a lot about race and uh, criminal justice, including you know the failed war on drugs, as it were. On May 29th, your chief health officer, uh, under the other health crisis that we're having, not the pandemic, but the opioid crisis that continues under the Toronto Overdose Action Plan, the first recommendation was actually to my level of government was to the federal minister of health to say we need an exemption under the CDSA to end the criminalization of people who use drugs, not for dealers, not for traffickers, not for producers, but for the very people we want to save. We want to save people's lives. We want to treat patients as patients, not as criminals. Now that's I, that's for me to do the work, but I presume just as you've deferred to public health experts in the course of the pandemic, you're, you'll lean on your public health experts in the course of the opioid crisis as you have, and as you'll and I hope you continue to. I'll be very honest with you. Uh, when I came to office and they brought to me the concept of a supervised injection site, I was very skittish about it. And, and I was skittish for the reason a lot of people are, which is I said, well, it seems very odd and counterintuitive that we should be making a place available to help people take drugs. And, and sh shouldn't we be just having more programs for them to get off drugs? I then learned a lot about uh, how many people were dying alone of overdose doses in an apartment or in an alleyway, even worse, and that this could save lives. This could save lives, and it brought the person who was addicted into contact with somebody in the health system, so maybe that would increase the chances they will get some help. And so I do listen to the advice of these professionals. I know with the supervised injection sites, well, they've had a degree of controversy, mostly to do with what goes on outside, sometimes a bit of you know unrest that happens. I also know that this kind of advice is wise, and I also know that if the war on drugs was going to be a success, we'd have known that by now. You know, all kinds of people are in jail all over the place and, and, and drug taking and, and addictions and overdoses are higher than ever. So I guess all I would say is that my thinking has to continue to evolve. And I'm just very honest about these things. You know, again, it strikes me initially as counterintuitive just to say, well, we're not going to penalize you if you carry around heroin in your pocket anymore for possession. Yeah. But, you know, maybe that's the road we have to sort of look at as a means of trying to stem what is a an incredible problem. You know this because you already were reading up on it. We lost more than 300 people 
in the city of Toronto last year to drug overdoses. And, you know, we had at the same period of time, I think 50, way too many, 50 pedestrian deaths. And we, we did a lot of things to react to that. Uh, we had, I think, 90 homicides. And we, we were very concerned as well, well we should be about that. We had 300 people die of drug overdoses. And so this is a serious problem. These are people's children and, and fathers and brothers and sisters. And, and we, they're human beings. And so, yeah, when you talk about that, when the pandemic is over, we're going to have to go back to examining what it is we're going to do to do better on that. Because 300 people dying in the city of Toronto and a, a serious, serious problem that's causing all kinds of anguish for the people involved, first and foremost, is not acceptable. The, the number that stopped me in my tracks, I mean, every single individual counts. But when you see 14,000 deaths in across Canada since January 2016, and then you have StatScan come out and say, our, our national life expectancy has stalled, and they attribute it to the opioid crisis. It, it is in, it's just incredible and, and obviously unacceptable. And to your point about further education, I, I agree many people find some of these ideas counterintuitive, but of course, the criminal sanction itself. We provided tens of millions of dollars for a public education campaign at the federal level to address the stigma associated with seeking treatment. But the criminal sanction is the largest stigma associated with seeking treatment. And so at the federal level, the simplest way of addressing that stigma is to remove it. So that's, again, that's a call from your public health officer, but it's, but it's to us and, and it's for us to act on in the end. My, my last question for you, I recently spoke to Art Eagleton. He's had a lifetime of public service as a minister, as a senator, as a member of parliament, as the mayor of Toronto. And he said that when he looks back at his whole career, and so you've had a varied political history yourself, but he looks back and he says, being mayor of my home city is what mattered most. And when I asked him what the most important thing he thought he achieved, he pointed to social housing. And I wonder, maybe you're too early on in your tenure, maybe you'll run again and it's too early to talk legacy, but is there something that you want to leave behind or when you, when you do get asked the question about looking back at what you've accomplished in your political life, Maybe it's not as mayor. I don't know. Maybe it was something before becoming mayor. But is there something you point to and you say, I'm not done yet, but this is it, or I, I've done it, and, and this is what I'm most proud of? I think it's going to be a combination of things that lead to an improvement in the situation we face in the marginalized neighborhoods in Toronto, because we have a growing population of people. It's grown during my lifetime. You know, who we used to have a city that was full of kind of people who would describe themselves as middle class, and that's what they were. And there were some wealthy people, and there were some people who were, you know, less fortunate. Now, the number of people who have sort of fallen into the category of really struggling and being less fortunate is growing. It has been growing for a long time, long before I was mayor. And I think through the poverty reduction program, through the anti-black racism initiative, through uh, building a strong economy, through building transit that connects up neighborhoods that have been historically isolated, which means it's harder to get to a job or get a job, through making sure that lower income people can get on that transit system by having a low income fare pass, first time we've ever had one, through building affordable housing. You know, so I sort of look at if we can achieve the affordable housing goals, get the transit bill in which your government, again, is a good partner for us, you know, address some of these measures that say, yes, we are going to treat people who are in a lower income differently and give them a chance by having them pay less for transit or different things like that. Um, and then if we can address, you know, being totally inclusive, like for real, in the economy, then I think that would be the greatest legacy you could ever leave. And it's harder to pinpoint it because it's not a place you go and point to a sign sure. or a park or point to, you know, but it is something where you can just see the housing, you can see the transit, you can feel the way people are using it to get themselves included. And so, you know, it'll be harder to measure, but I will know that if we've made, we've already made some progress, but we've got a lot more to do. And the problem won't be solved during the time I'm there. I, I won't live that long, but, but you know, it's a long time 
thing to sort out, but I think we can make a real difference on it. And your government is committed to that through things like the national housing strategy. The provincial government has made some good moves in this direction, and we've just got to work together to keep at that because that's the key, I think, is all hands on deck. Everybody gets an opportunity to show how good they can be and, and how much they can live their own dreams because everybody has them, whatever their skin color, their sexual orientation, their faith. They've all got dreams for themselves and for their children. The key is, can we make it such that any one of those people can live what we always call the Canadian dream, that any person can be whatever they want to be? Well, we all know, if we're really being honest, that's not really, it's possible, but it's hard, and we have to make it easier. It's interesting you frame it in that way. I've recently been looking at Canada Emergency Response Benefit that we have as this poorly designed, basically designed well initially for people where we didn't want people to be in the workforce. But as, as Toronto reopens in a more serious way, as Ontario reopens, as our country reopens, the CERB creates a disincentive to work. And you, I don't know if you were in Bill Davis's office when this took place, but the GAINS program for seniors which is effectively a basic income for seniors. And when we talk about economic inclusion, that basic income support for people to have that opportunity, Hugh Siegel says bootstraps need boots and he's right. And we saw the federal government pick up on that and create the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. And I wonder if there's a moment in time for when we talk about economic inclusion, it can't just be up to the city of Toronto, federal government has to lean in here too. And if there's a moment to say, let's redesign the CERB along the lines of the guaranteed income supplement, which was born out of, your work maybe with Bill Davis and others in the Premier's office. I was there and I don't believe any of those measures, especially if you counteract against them or counterbalance against them, the incredible cost and hassle of all the programs we run, because there's not going to be probably 500 of them, if not more, yeah. and all the papers and the people. I think that uh, there are very, very few people. And you know what? There are people in any system under any series of programs who are going to try and use the system as an excuse not to work. There's always people like that. Just as there are people who, you know, rob banks and there's all kinds of things people do that are aberrant behavior. And there's a few. I think the vast majority of people would see it as a, an evolution of our own safety net, but that they would see it as still a powerful incentive to go out and try and achieve their dreams. Everybody yeah. wants to do better than the guaranteed basic income that basically provides you with enough to kind of pay your rent and maybe have a, a couple of meals a day. Everybody wants to do better than that. And so I think these are things we're going to have to look at. And again, the pandemic may have, you know, shown us the way a little bit in terms of the good and the bad. As you say, you got to, you, you would carefully design a guaranteed annual income type program or a guaranteed income supplement, but it has worked for the seniors. And I have noticed a lot of them turning into indigent people who, you know, they've, they've just been able to live a life of dignity and have know that there was a safety net behind it, which is what you want. That's part of the Canadian way. And a, and a credit, frankly, to the fact that some of these great ideas can be born out of conservative premier's offices and then sure. elevated at the national level. And it, th this is an area when we talk about economic inclusion that should cut across party lines in a serious way. Totally. Well, John, I, I, I thank you for your time. I look forward to seeing the affordable housing built across our city, and I absolutely hope, and, and I'll keep working as hard as I can to make sure the city gets the federal support that it needs for operating costs in the course of this crisis. You've been a great supporter, and you speak up, too, which is important. Not that your colleagues don't. They do, too. Everybody's got their own way of doing these things, but we appreciate the support of the national government. They've been good partners for Toronto during the whole time I've been there. And uh, so let's move forward together. You know, this, this country is still, and this city, still the greatest place in the world to live. You know, I think that notwithstanding all that we've been through, if you look at the foundations we have here for a great life and a great economy and so on, it will come back. And people just have to have some hope. It's been a tough winter and spring, but brighter days lie ahead. Thanks, John. Okay, bye, Nate. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNate.